Let's pray together once again as we prepare to open the word of the Lord together. God, we do thank you so much that you will sustain us, that you do sustain us. And then in the midst of trials that we encounter and in the midst of difficulties that we face in the in the midst of every circumstance of life. We can be confident in knowing that we are yours. Sealed by your Holy Spirit. Redeemed. By your son. God, we thank you for giving us your word that gives us insight into who you are, what you've done and how we should live in light of that. So, God, I pray that today as we consider the book of Second Peter. Lord, I just ask that you give us insight by your spirit. We know that your spirit moves in mysterious and wonderful ways. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would. Help us to understand you. Give us a desire to walk in obedience. Grant us understanding of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles and would like to open to the book of 2 Peter, that is where we're going to be today. There's probably only one or two other references that I'll be looking at. And if you remember last week, we looked at Peter's first letter to a group of Christians. And uh, we, we talked about the fact that that letter, 1 Peter, was likely written from Rome while Peter was in prison. And it was written to a, a bunch of Christians who were in what we now know as Eastern Turkey. And, and he wrote that letter, 1 Peter, as a means of encouraging these men and women in the midst of, tur- uh, of turmoil, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering that they were encountering. And many commentators think that Peter wrote this second letter just a few weeks or months after that first letter. And while he doesn't tell us exactly so, he, we believe that he wrote it most likely to that same group of churches. Because he tells us later on, this is now the second time I'm writing to you. But instead of dealing with persecution, instead of dealing with this challenge of suffering, something that Christians get to be a part of, and yet we don't often like. Peter is, is, is helping us deal with something else that is that plagues, plagues society, that plagues us, and that is false teaching. Peter is helping us and helping his first century readers to understand how to how to recognize and how to deal with false teachers and false teaching. And so today, as we walk through that, we're going to be considering what he has to say about that. So you're welcome to follow along in your outline that's in your bulletin or you can download it online. Um, But as we begin, we learn from Peter in order to. To counter false teaching and false teachers, we must embrace and apply what we have received from God. If you remember way back when we so, as you know, we've been walking through God's story in Scripture for almost two years now. We've been taking each book of the Bible and walking through. Well, when we were going through some of the letters, one of the some of Paul's letters, one of the things that we learned is so often Paul will give us indicative He'll help us understand here is a truth. And in light of this truth, you need to act this way. 
And so Peter here in the beginning of his book really does the very same thing. He, he says, here are some indicatives, some truths that you must do. You must know in order to do these imperatives to take action on these other things. And really, I think what Peter wants us to understand is that we have received so much from God. Which begs the question, what have we received from God? And so Peter tells us a few things here. First of all, we get to see that we have received his righteousness. If you look in in first in second Peter one, one, it says Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says this. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to allow that to sink in for just a moment. To those who have who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. You see, here is Peter. One of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples, one of these first 12 guys that Jesus called out. And then not only that is he not only was he one of the 12, but he was one of the inner three. You see, Jesus had like his inner posse and then he had the whole posse and then he had all the disciples. But here's the cool thing. So often when we when we think about these apostles, these first guys, we think, oh, wow, they are just specially endowed by God. They've been gifted. There's some cool people. And they are, we are no way worthy to be in their presence. And yet what Peter tells us is he's writing to people who have obtained the very same faith, the very same righteousness. You see, Peter and the other apostles, they were, they were giants of our faith. Yes. But were they any more righteous than we are? The cool thing is we get to read about some of their stories, some of their foibles. And we think, mm, yes, no. I mean, you know that uh, Peter had foot and mouth disease, right? He would open his mouth and stick his foot there sometimes because he would say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And yet we get to stand on their shoulders. We get to walk in the same faith. We get to enjoy the same privileges before God as Peter and the other apostles. They had a specific calling. And God called them at a specific time, but we have the same faith, that same righteousness that we have received from God. We stand on level ground before the throne of God with the apostles, not because of our good works or our social standing or our self-righteousness. But because of the righteousness we have received through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to just tell you guys so often when I'm reading over the scripture and I don't know if you guys do this too, you know, and all, especially in these epistles, the, the writers, they'll write the way they do. They'll say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ or Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and, and then they'll say to the church at whatever. And they'll write it specifically to those people. And so often when I'm reading it, I skip over that part. I don't look at the blessing that they have at the beginning. And, and for whatever reason, as I was studying this week, I, I landed on that blessing that, Jesus, that Peter writes to those who have, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. 
think, wow, what a joy it is for us to have the same thing that Peter, Paul, James, John, all of the apostles had. We have the same standing by Jesus Christ. We have received his righteousness. So we get to rejoice in that. We get to embrace and apply that. But the second thing we've also received is, is his power. You see, we have certain abilities to try to do good on our own and try to live uprightly. But because we live in these fallen dirt bags, as Jordan called us, right? <laughs> because we live in these fallen bodies, we want to make decisions that are selfish, that are sin laden. And so all of our carnal activity, all of that tangible stuff that we do falls short. And so God has given us his power to help us do this here. Listen to what he says in second Peter one, three to four. He says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Sort of kind of begs the question, how is God's divine power realized in our lives? And I think what Jordan helped us understand in the kids connection is that it is through his Holy Spirit. That is the part of, of God that indwells us. That is the part of God, that breath of God that gives us insight, that gives us wisdom, that, that as she said, as the as scripture says, convicts us of sin and righteousness and the coming judgment that that gives us words when we need it. It helps us understand the Holy Spirit. He helps us understand. He indwells every believer. He guides us. He does not overtake our will, but he he he, he leads us to yield or submit to his presence. His divine power is in us. But not only have we received his righteousness and his divine power, we learned through we learned. Um, we have learned about this through his witnesses in first in second Peter one. 16 to 18. We're not going to read that right now, but Peter, uh, it, you know, as a means of addressing various false teachers, some of these guys are saying, well, how did you get this information from Peter? He just made this stuff up. Peter's trying to tell them, no, I was there when was transfigured. I was there when I heard the voice of God and it wasn't just me. There were two other people there with me. I understand. I saw with my very own eyes the risen Christ. I saw him on the cross, nails in his hands, spear in his side, blood pouring out. I saw them put him in the grave and I walked to the empty tomb. I got to see him time and time again. And he's helping us understand that not only him, but others. In fact, there's a, the Apostle Paul in one of his letters writes that there were over 500 people who saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. And so we have these witnesses. We have these others that help us understand that what we are reading, what we are seeing, what we are learning is confirmed. So not only do we have his righteousness and his power we learn about it from his eyewitnesses, but also we have these eyewitness accounts supported in his word. In, in uh, 2 Peter 1, 19 to 20, 
I see between the, the inspired prophecies of the Old Testament and the New Testament writings, Peter seems to help be helping us see that his teaching is not something that he made up, but it's supported by Scripture. And that and that these are the writings of various people. You see, I think it's something profound and beautiful in Christianity that we have in our Bibles the inspired writings of multiple authors that span hundreds or even a couple thousand years. These 66 books are not the writings of one person, but dozens. Each of whom who have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Each of whom are telling the same story from a different perspective, with a different voice, giving us a fuller understanding of God and how he works. But when we think about some of the other religions of the world, not all of them, but many of the other religions of the world and even some heretical factions of Christianity, there's a bottleneck when it comes to writings. You see, so many of these, there's one person who gives all of the information. And so because it's that one voice, the only truth you have is whatever that person says. For instance, Muhammad is the one source for the book of Quran. In the in the Mormon church, Joseph Smith is the one source for the Book of Mormon and their other writings. In fact, there's even a, a modern church today. You might know of them because of their music. It's called the Bethel Church. And one of the things that they're doing is they have they have a guy who is taking scripture. Translating it back into what he says is the original Aramaic in order to trans translate it back into English for us. Well, if you have one person doing the untranslation and then retranslating it, you have now one voice. And the challenge is that one voice is making scripture say whatever he wants it to say. We have to be careful with things like that. And so that's the beauty of what we have in God's word. And you might think, well, well, Joel, don't we have like a ton of translations? If you were to go over to my office, I probably have seven or eight different English translations of scripture. Well, why? What are all those? Well, every time we have a new translation, people are going back to the original language. But it's not just one. It is multiple, multiple, multiple people who are talking and arguing and debating over every word, every note, every exclamation, every piece of grammar in order to help it help us understand the word of God more fully. And so I want to just encourage us that that we have this beautiful word of God spoken with a whole variety of voices that is uniquely and completely inspired by God. But you see, I, I think he doesn't just want us to embrace what we have received from God, his righteousness, his power, what we've received through his eyewitnesses and through his word. We, he wants us to apply these things. And, and so then that begs another question. How should we apply these things? And, and really, I think Peter's trying to tell us we should apply these through spiritual disciplines. Look at what it says in Second Peter one, five through 11. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness, brotherly affection and brotherly, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, so often we we might think that we could just sit in our faith. You you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you say, "Okay, Holy Spirit, I I know that I have sin and I know that I need to repent. And so I repent. I, I trust you, Jesus Christ. And so we just rest in that. We never get involved in church. We never get involved in personal Bible study. We never grow in our relationship with God. We just imagine what it would be like for me as I I became a Christian when I was about five years old. Imagine what would happen if I never grew in that. If I just sat as a five year old, 48 year old adult, you would know that there are some problems going on up here if I didn't grow at all. Right. And that's that's what Peter is encouraging us with here. He's encouraging us to grow. And so he says to add to our faith. Now, now here's here's the thing. He's not telling us to add to our faith so that we can be made right. But he's telling us to add to our faith so that we can grow. Our faith is, is sufficient. We receive that from God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to add anything to that to gain access to God. But he wants us to add to our faith virtue or excellence, good intentions. And then adding to that knowledge, continually growing in our knowledge of our faith through personal Bible study, through fellowship with other believers, through discipleship opportunities. He wants us to add to our faith self-control. This is where we get to apply what we've learned. I've, I've told you before, I heard, heard somebody reference something. He said, To know, to know something and not to do something is not to know something. To know and not to do is not to know. And so what essentially what what Peter is saying here is now that you're adding this, these good intentions, now that you're adding this knowledge, show self-control. If it's going to impact our speech, watch your language. If it's going to impact how we show love and compassion, watch your judgmentalness. If it's going to impact your purity, watch your eyes. And then he says, add to that steadfastness or faithfulness, that that steadiness that keeps going, even in the midst of difficulties. Add to steadfastness, godliness, acting in a way that honors God, acting in the righteousness that we have received. Adding to that brotherly affection, mutual care for one another, being willing to go out of our way. Being willing to, as, as we talk about sometimes in the elders, being willing to be that person that someone would call at three in the morning. To say, I need help. Will you come and help? Showing brotherly affection. But finally, and really the pinnacle of all this is love. Love, unconditional love that shows genuine concern for the well-being of others. And, but what don't you see in that list? Do you notice what's not there? It doesn't say don't drink. It doesn't say don't smoke. It doesn't say don't sleep around. It doesn't say go to church. It doesn't say read your Bible. You see, Peter's not talking about a legalistic code 
He's talking about transformation. He's talking about doing disciplines in order to allow our lives to be transformed. And I think these qualities seem to build on one one another. And as we apply what we've received from God, we we avoid, as he said, becoming ineffective and unfruitful. So not only do we get to embrace and apply all that we have received from God, but in the second chapter, we see that, that we must expect the existence of false teachers. I, I got to tell you, I tend to be an optimist. I, I tend to look at things and see the see the uh, see the best in people, I, I, unless I'm driving. And then I always see the worst in people because they're never going the right speed or never acting properly. But I, I got to tell you, because I, I expect the best. I can sometimes be caught off guard when I hear someone that I trust say something that is out of line with God's word. When I hear somebody that I, I respect begin to drift away from the orthodox teachings of the word of God. And Peter's first century readers, they were likely dealing with teachers who were exploiting some of Paul's teachings on freedom. And they were doing that in order to fill their pockets and in order to indulge their passions. And Peter seems to be telling them and telling us to simply expect the fact that since there were false prophets in the past, there will be false teachers today. We have to be aware of that. We have to look at that. So then the question becomes, how do we know how to detect false teachers? Because some of these are some of these guys are slick. Some of these guys are really and some of the things they say. Oh, man, it's so enticing. And Peter gives us some indication of what to look out for. And look at Second Peter two, one to three. This is but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift, swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. And then he continues a few verses later. Look down in, in verse 12. But these, I love what he says here, these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Think about that. False teachers are like animals that are born to be caught and destroyed. Those of you guys who like hunting think that all animals are born to be caught and, and, and killed and, and then eaten. And he's, he's essentially equating false teachers with those who are going to be hunted, except not by us. They're going to be hunted by God. So these creatures born creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to reveal in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes revealing their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. You see, there are a whole variety of places where we can look today and see the kinds of uh, kinds of people that Peter is talking about. 
For instance, preachers and churches that promote prosperity theology. This might be sort of a low-hanging fruit, and you might think, Joel, that, that's not a temptation for us. But keep in mind, we live in America, where in order, the American dream is to really have as much as you can, right? The one who dies with the most toys wins. Isn't that the American motto, or wasn't it? But I think what happens is a slick-talking, charismatic speaker can make the Word of God Say anything they want it to. All so that you and I will give them a little bit more so they can have a little bit more. So they can get a little more. A little more money, a little nicer car, bigger houses, even planes. But there are also teachers who are rewriting biblical morality through flawed hermeneutics. There are some who want to condone all sorts of behavior, all sorts of morality, all sorts of sexual behavior under the guise of freedom. Or even they use a, a Hebrew word like like Jordan, Ruach, but they use the word Shalom. For example, there was a pastor, a teacher that I used to love listening to. And years ago, he began to de- redefine sin as a lack of Shalom, a lack of peace. And so rather than seeing sin as falling short of God, as a lack of shalom, now sin is falling short of me. And do you see how dangerous that can be? Well, if I'm out of sync with me, then all I got to do is act in a way that makes me at peace with me. We could justify any behavior as being good or right. Because we're at peace with ourselves. The problem is that we are not the standard. I'm so glad I'm not the standard because ask my kids, they'll tell you my standards shift around all the time. God is the standard. And that's why he's the comparison for sin. He's the one we look to. He's the one we have to have our lives redeemed for. But also there are teachers who endorse universalism. There are many there. There have been many teachers over the centuries who would say that all religions and faiths essentially lead to the same place. They're all sufficient to get us to heaven or paradise or nirvana or whatever the end is that they think is there. And while it's true that there are similarities in religions, there are certain things that we can read in in Jesus teaching and we can see those same things in other religions. But how can they all go to the same place if they contradict one another? How do they deal with sin? How do they deal with right? Is it is it just a matter of being good? Eventually, they all contradict each other. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Now, I tell you, we we could spend weeks analyzing various doctrines and heresies, but we'd be better. We'd be it'd be times better spent if we just reinforced what we do believe. I've heard it said that those who who are looking for counterfeit money, they they don't study all of the variations. They don't study the twenty dollar bill that is created by this mint or that mint or that. They look at the original and they get their eyes fixed on the original. and They want to know this is the original so that as soon as they see something that's not the original, they recognize, oh, that's not the original. I don't care where it came from, but that's not the real thing. 
And that's why we need to pour ourselves into the word of God. That's why we need to understand what he is saying so that we get the original. And then when we hear something that sounds mm, that's a little off, we can come back here and say, what does the word of God say? When it comes to false teachers, we have to remember that, as it says in Second Peter two seventeen and 19, these people and this is another good one. I love Peter's language here. These people are as useless as dried up springs or as a mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting, with an appeal to twisted sexual desires. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slave to sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. So if we have to expect that false teachers will be around and we have to be aware of what they will teach, it sort of begs the question about why God would allow false teachers. Why doesn't he simply do away with them? And Peter doesn't really answer that question. He doesn't talk about why God allows it to happen. I think in some ways it's because God wants to strengthen our resolve. He wants to allow us to be tested. And we understand, we, we learned from James, we learned in First Peter last week that that testing, those trials, that persecution is a means of God refining us, is a means that God uses. But it also seems to be a way for God to allow us to see the consequences of our sin. We get to see that because sin is in the world, because sin is rampant, they're going to be people who do whatever they want to with sin. Peter, while he doesn't directly answer that question of why God would allow false teachers, he does answer this question. What will happen to false teachers? What will happen to these guys? And in short, just as God punished those who rebelled against him in the past and, and God preserved those who were faithful, God will do the same in the future. He has a just a judgment. He has a day of reckoning for those who are false, for those who are rebellious against God. And so Peter has encouraged us to embrace and apply all that we have from God. He's encouraged us to expect false teachers and essentially watch out for them. But finally, Peter tells us that we should expect the coming day of the Lord. From the earliest days of the church, people have been looking forward to the return of the Lord where where God's people will be vindicated and God's enemies will be punished. You see, Jesus gave us some clues, but he never said, I'm coming back on this date. He never gave us a timeline. And this delay has led some to wander from the faith and, and has led false teachers to say, oh, Jesus is not coming back. He's never going to return. So do something else. And Peter wants to remind us what we have learned. He says, remember what you have learned. Look at what it says in Second Peter 3, 1 to 3. Now, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, 
following their own sinful desires. He's sort of reinforcing what we already learned. Hey, false teachers are there. Scoffers are there. Expect that they're going to be there. But know that that is something we get to see about what will come in advance of Jesus return. But we also have to keep in mind that God's timing is not like ours. Look at what it says in chapter three, verses eight to ten. It says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, God sees everything beginning to end at the same time. And so because of that, he lives outside of time for him. A thousand years of our time is like a day. It's like a moment. It's like a a, just a fleeting instant. But I think what is wonderful is that God does not want that anyone should perish. God does not want that anyone should be punished, should be left in sin. His delay is a reminder of his patience. This week, as you may know, Andrew and Zoe and I got a chance to go to the SBC annual meeting. And one of the biblical references that we heard over and over again is Revelation 7, 9, where it says, After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And I think one, one of the persistent goals of, of the International Mission Board, that group of international missionaries that we as, as, as uh, Baptists support through the cooperative program. One of their persistent goals is to see this verse come to fruition, where people from every nation, tribe and tongue will be before the throne of God. Well, just how, how well are we doing on this? According to some of their statistics, there are 7,283 unreached people groups in the world today. That means that there's less than 2% of a Christian population in those places. But there is active work going on in those 7,283 people groups. But there's another group of people, 3,105 who are unengaged and unreached people groups. This is less than 2% Christian population, and there's no work being done there. You know, one of the interesting things is you can go anywhere in the world and buy a Coca-Cola, but you can't go everywhere in the world and find someone who will tell you about Jesus Christ. We need to do a better job with our evangelism. And I'm glad that we have people out there who are willing to go. People like Eric and Lynn Bass who are going to really exciting places and making, staying up all hours of the night, sharing the gospel with people who are far from God. But think about this and let this sink in for just a second. Every day, there are 155,473 people who die without Christ. 155,473 Did you know that that's roughly the population of Montgomery County public school students? Every day, the equivalent, the entire 
school system dies without Christ. We have a job to do. God is patient to return because we still have work to do. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And as it pertains to false teachers, God is patient. He's enduring them. He's encouraging us to endure them while we finish the task before us. And I want to just encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you've not received the salvation that comes from him, he is being patient for you. He is being patient for you. And when he comes, whenever that is, he will come swiftly. And at that point, it will be too late. The Bible gives us this great promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I have to ask you, I get to ask you, will you trust in the Lord today? Or will you be one of those 155,000 people that may pass from life to death? Without a savior. If you don't know, understand what that means. Send me an email pastor at pullsvobaptist.com. Let's get together after church. Let's talk. I know it's Father's Day. We can. I'd rather introduce you to your heavenly father than go and celebrate what I'm going to do with my family. If I could spend time with you, I'd be happy to do that. But believers, because we get to walk by faith in Christ's righteousness, we get to expect that there will be false teachers who seek to lure us aside. Because of that, we get to be diligent to walk in holiness and peace. Second Peter 3.14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We need to make sure that we're not caught up into the greed and sensuality and the compromise of false teachers. We get to continue to walk in holiness, but also to remain at peace, peace with God, because we've been reconciled to him by Jesus Christ, because we're seeking to daily yield our lives and that sinfulness in in us to him. But we also get to remain at peace with others, demonstrating that life of love that God has called us to live, not endorsing sinfulness. That's not love. But in love, sharing the good news as you have people over yeah, you can have people over now. Invite your neighbor over. In fact, I was, I was talking to some guys uh, two weeks ago while we were preparing the Lord's Supper. And I, I asked Brian and, and um, Dan, I said, hey, guys, I need a little godly wisdom. You're godly guys. I need some godly wisdom. And I said, my neighbor invited me over to play poker. He's was like, is that okay for a Baptist pastor to play poker? And they said, yeah, do it. All because we get this opportunity to spend time with. How will people know what we believe if we don't get to spend time with people? So invite someone over. If you don't like poker, do something else. Have a meal. Meals are really good things. But also, but think about this, those opportunities you have. Some of you guys have dogs, right? And I know dogs don't like other dogs around. But when you're walking around and people want to adore your cute dog. Talk to them. Get to know them. When you're at your mailbox or you're taking your trash down and there's your neighbor, have a conversation and pour out your life before they help. Ask, ask about them. Or when you're in the office, I know some of you guys are so enjoying zooming in that you'd rather work from home than go to the office. But when you get an opportunity to go back to work, do they know of the hope that you have? 
Let me just close with this. As you know, as I mentioned, Andrew and Zoe and I got to be at the Southern Baptist annual meeting. And some of you are thinking, why in the world would you want to go to that? Sometimes I wonder, too. But going into the meeting, there was a lot of chatter on the Internet and in news places. And because, I mean, what happens when you get 15,000 Baptists together in one room? Sounds like a start of a good joke, right? 15,000 Baptists were gathered together. And what happened? And there were a lot of eyes watching as the largest denomination in, in the world gathered they wanted to see fireworks. They wanted to see contention. They wanted to see all sorts of things. And, and I got to tell you, what I observed was like nothing I've ever experienced. There were some frustrating and, and unfortunate things because, of course, we're human. But part of that is because of our polity. As Baptists, we, we, we kind of generally believe in congregationalism, which means that everybody can have a voice. Well, when you get 15,000 people, there's a lot of strange voices, Right. But there are also some beautiful things. Let me just give you a a little bit. We'll talk more at our next family meeting in the middle of of July. But rather than uh, here's a couple things that I I really appreciated, rather than taking time to be honored, some of our past convention presidents asked, you know, it's, it's weird how some of this works, but we had to approve the agenda. 15,000 people had to say, yes, I approve this agenda. And one of the past presidents said, made a motion that instead of honoring all of these previous presidents, that we have a time of prayer. And for 15 or 20 minutes, we gathered in clusters and everybody almost unanimously voted, yes, let's pray. And because that happened so early, it really set the tone for the entire convention. It was amazing how much, you know, there's this angst and because there's a lot of big issues that we're dealing with as Baptists. And some of this you may have read about in the in the main press. And if you have questions about it, feel free to ask. But that time of prayer set the tone that we're here for God, not for our agenda, not for what we think we want to do or what we think is right, but. We are here and really for the Great Commission. But there were some groups who came with a specific agenda to address critical race theory. And I got to tell you, you know, it's a complicated theory about the origins of racism and systemic racism that's in our society. In fact, this theory is so complex that James Merritt said in response to some loud voices, he said this, he said, never before have I seen people speak so loudly about something they know so little about. And then he went on to say, if we would only be this, this, if we would only be this passionate about the Great Commission, we wouldn't have a problem at all with racism in our society. But we left with a resolution that decried all forms of racism and reinforced our conviction that every man-made theory and ideology is subordinate to the authority of Scripture. God's word is sufficient for everything we encounter. And then we elected a man to be president who has a history of fostering racial reconciliation in the Deep South. There were also some who came with an agenda to get to the bottom of some allegations of intimidation and sexual harassment among some pastors and denominational leaders. 
And we left with a mandate for the new president to initiate a task force made up of churches, members from various churches and also appropriately uh, experienced professionals to investigate allegations and to make recommendations for how to address them. And then here's the cool thing. See, the executive board, so the executive committee is this group of people that work year round for us as Southern Baptists. And so the executive committee has this vision 2025, and it was a fivefold vision. Well, someone moved before we could, could adopt that fivefold vision as our fivefold vision to, to get to 2025. Someone moved and, and asked that we add a sixth, a sixth vision. You can't do it on one hand, a sixth vision. And this was, this was it, that we prayerfully endeavor before God to eliminate all instances of sex abuse, sex abuse and racial discrimination among our churches. And now for the next four years, that along with the other five visions, and we'll talk about what those are, gets to be a regular part of what we're trying to do as Baptists. Trying to root out those sins, those things. That, and there's, there are false teachings in our denomination. There are people because we're human, who will act sinfully. They will act stupidly. But I got to tell you, you know, there were these 15,000 messengers that came with varying agendas. And even one person, being a good Baptist, he loved to eat. He said, I think we should have a fellowship meal Sunday on our annual Baptist calendar. As if there are more important things. (laughs) But here's the thing that I came away with is that we left with a focus on the Great Commission. As we sent 64 missionaries who will be going out. We also have this big goal in the next four years to send out an additional 500 international missionaries and to start another 5,000 churches here in North America. I got to tell you, wouldn't it be exciting if some of us, our little church here in Poolsville, Wouldn't it be exciting if some of us were those people who went overseas? Wouldn't it be exciting if some of us were the people who were part of starting another church or two? So that the gospel can be proclaimed in every nook and cranny, every part of this world. So so the gospel of Jesus Christ is as ubiquitous as Coca-Cola. Wouldn't that be amazing? So that then, just as the whole world, what's that old Coke commercial? Where they would sing, people from everywhere were singing about Coca-Cola. Wouldn't it be exciting when we're all gathered together singing, How great is our God. And we rejoice that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are worshiping our God. We have a lot of work to do as a convention, both inwardly and outwardly. But I believe that we will accomplish the task before us If, as Peter encourages us, we embrace and apply all that we have received from God. His righteousness, his power, his witnesses, his word. If we expect that there are going to be false teachers inside and outside the church, there are people who are going to try to distract us, get us off course. The Great Commission is our mission. And we need to expect that Jesus will come again to reward his people And to judge those who reject him. And our job is to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish. And to be at peace. Let's pray together.
God, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the life that we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we get to be what some are calling Great Commission Baptists. People who are on mission for you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to be your witnesses, your ambassadors, your light in a dark and dying world. God, we do pray for us as a convention, but also us as a church, that you would raise us, raise up many to go overseas to proclaim the good news where it's not known. You would raise up some to start new churches in places where the gospel is not known very well. Not so that we can have a bigger convention, but so that you can have a bigger kingdom. God, we want to be about your business, about the task that you have placed before us. And God, we want to see your vision come to fruition of every nation, tribe and tongue gathering around before your throne, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, help us as we seek to be faithful to that now and until you return. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.